This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Anchorlight, home to a 1,500-square-foot zero-commission gallery providing exhibition opportunities to emerging artists. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Sometime in the mid-1980s, when I was but a wee tot, I was enjoying a little pre-bedtime snack in the kitchen while my parents watched TV in the living room nearby. I heard snippets of a show about a fascinating tomb filled with gold, an archaeological discovery unlike any other, and one that had entranced generations. But, the TV show loudly declared, such incredible treasure came with a severe price as so many of the major players involved in its discovery had died painfully, unexpectedly, or both. That's because the tomb was, is, cursed. This narrative lodged itself in my little kid brain, and it terrified me. I recall that not too terribly long after, my mom, a big fan of all things ancient Egypt, asked me that generic childhood question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, Please note that the answer was not art historian, and other than becoming a paleontologist, I couldn't really come up with any good answers. So she tossed a few my way. Veterinarian? Nah. Ballerina? No. Astronaut? Definitely not, I declared, because it wasn't long after the Challenger disaster, after all. With a gleam in her eye, she paused, and recalling that recent TV special, she said, How about an Egyptologist? a person who studies the language, history, and culture of ancient Egypt. And I looked at her with shock. How could she, my own mother, suggest such a career? Because based on what little I knew, exploring the tombs of the long-dead pharaohs of ancient Egypt meant one thing, certain death. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, Season 9, has been all about curses in fine art and archaeology, a topic that was suggested by you, our listeners. And today, it's our Season 9 finale, which we've hinted at all season long. The biggest archaeological discovery, some say, of the 20th century and whose cursedness has come to overshadow the treasure within. Today, we're uncovering the rumor of the evils that lurked inside King Tutankhamun's tomb. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. It seems like we all know about the tomb of King Tut, Maybe you were lucky enough to see the huge touring exhibition, Treasures of Tutankhamun, that traveled to six cities in the U.S. in the second half of the 1970s, which might be the first-ever museum blockbuster exhibition, according to some scholars. 
Maybe you've seen YouTube clips of Steve Martin with his King Tut, a song and dance routine from an early episode of Saturday Night Live, a novelty song that actually reached number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100 music chart after selling well over 1 million copies. Or perhaps you got an idea about the fantastic boy king in a fictionalized take with Tuttenstein, a kid's show that ran in the early 2000s based on a comic book character by Canadian cartoonist Jay Stevens. Or maybe like me, you were unlucky enough to overhear a late-night TV show and it spooked you senseless. Either way, Tutankhamun is now one of the most recognizable names of an Egyptian pharaoh, second only, perhaps, to Ramses II. But my money is that most people still probably know at least a little more about Tut than they do about Ramses. But what really made Tutankhamun big-time, big-name news was the discovery of his golden tomb, and not the king himself. If it wasn't for that tomb, he might have been somewhat forgotten by history, because Tutankhamun wasn't a super-famous king. He was kind of a minor pharaoh in the grand scheme of things. Here's the rough outline of Tut's life. He lived during what is known as the 18th Dynasty of the New Kingdom, a period from roughly 1550 BCE to about 1290 BCE that was one of the greatest times in ancient Egypt, one filled with big names for those who are already familiar with Egyptian art and history. People like Nefertiti, Akhenaten, and Hatshepsut. Born in 1342 BCE, the boy who would be pharaoh was probably Akhenaten's son, though archaeologists aren't 100% certain and it has been widely debated in recent years. What we do know is that DNA testing on mummies found in locations near Tutankhamun's tomb have identified a familial link between Tut and the supposed body of Akhenaten. And Tut's mother was also determined by DNA testing to be Akhenaten's sister, someone just known in the literature as the younger lady. This whole family marriage thing, I mean, we would call it incest today, but there was this long-standing practice of interfamilial marriage because closing the family ranks was considered a good thing back then. Keep this idea in mind, because we are going to be coming back to it. The things you learn when you study art history. Oof. When Tutankhamun was around nine years old, he ascended the throne after Akhenaten and ruled originally with help of a vizier, a high official who served the pharaoh during his time on the throne as well as having help from some other advisors. And Tutankhamun ruled for almost a decade and died tragically while still a teenager. But during that short period, he actually got some pretty good things done. The biggest change he made was in restoring the traditional polytheistic religion previously celebrated in Egypt. Before Akhenaten decreed that all faith should focus instead on one god known as Aten, the sun disk most frequently associated with Ra, the god of the sun. Considering himself basically the high priest and potentially a prophet of Atenism, and that is where Akhenaten got his name, Tut's purported daddy forbade worship of any other gods and adherence to any other religion. And because of that, Akhenaten was supremely unpopular, even later referred to in some historical records as, quote, the enemy, unquote. Tut changed all that. He instead re-embraced traditional polytheistic belief. In his personal life, we can see that he embraced that old family tradition, though. He married his half-sister, a girl called Akhenaten, the daughter of Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti, we are told. 
Even though the pair were still teenagers most likely, they did what royalty the world over has long been obsessed with, keeping that family line going. But Tut and his wife would never have a successor because their two children both died. One was miscarried before birth, and the other one died shortly after it was born. And then Tut kicked the bucket around age 18, at which time the royal line went extinct. Given the intermarrying of siblings, cousin, and even parents and children that was common in ancient Egypt, it is not too much of a surprise to think that Tut died early, or even that neither of his children survived. Because certainly that shared bloodline couldn't have been a good thing, biologically speaking. And recent scientific analysis backs this up. Scientists have examined Tutankhamun's mummified remains and noted that, at the very least, the young pharaoh suffered from bone necrosis, basically the death of bone tissue due to an issue with blood supply. He also was thought to have a club foot, scoliosis, and was dealing with the ramifications of several malarial infections. While we don't know exactly what caused his death, these issues probably weakened his body and led to a leg fracture which got infected. And so, around 1325 BCE, Tutankhamun died, his body embalmed, adorned with jewelry, wrapped, and then entombed, nestled into multiple coffins and into a huge wooden sarcophagus that was then nestled into further additional chests. Together with furniture, treasures, weapons, and even chariots used during his lifetime, the body of Tutankhamun was carried to the Valley of the Kings, the traditional burial site for the pharaohs, and there Tut was placed in a tomb and sealed shut. And that was that. The end of the story. Except, of course, we know that wasn't the end. Because the young pharaoh's tomb was discovered in the 1920s, and it became spectacular headline news. It was a sensation, a cultural moment that made history. And it brought some really fascinating myths to the surface. So how did it start? And who was involved? That's coming up next, right after a quick break. Come right back. There are streaming services that are meant to turn our brains off, you know, to provide you with some mindless entertainment. But then there's Wondrium, a streaming service that is meant to blow your mind. Recently, I started watching a really great program called The Great Tours, a guided tour of ancient Egypt that really takes you to all of the important sites and some sites that you probably have never heard of that are important for Egyptian art, monuments, and their history and religious beliefs. I was enthralled. Wondrium has thousands of audio and video learning experiences to feed our curiosity. And these are courses that go much further than what we'd find just searching the web. Wondrium's content is fun and exciting, and it gives us access to a world of knowledge from the top experts and storytellers around the world, with documentaries, tutorials, and collections from Kino Lorber, Magellan TV, Craftsy, and more, covering practically any subject you can imagine. Plus, it also includes all of your old favorites from The Great Courses. So join me and experience your own mind-blowing moments with Wondrium. Right now, my listeners can get this special offer, which is a free month of unlimited access to Wondrium's entire library. So go now to wondrium.com art to sign up today. 
That's Wondrium, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash art. Running a small business, you have to wear a lot of hats. I know, because making this podcast, I wear a ton. Do you want great teammates to give some of those hats to? When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. With Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope that your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed Instant Match helps you make a short list of great candidates fast. The moment you sponsor a job, you get a list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Then you can invite them to apply. Plus, Indeed makes finding quality candidates even faster with 135 assessments to help make sure you find applicants with the right skills. Best of all, you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com art. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com art. Indeed.com art. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. The story of the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb begins with a daredevil Englishman in need, perhaps, of a new hobby. George Herbert, an aristocrat known as the Earl of Carnarvon, who, by the way, owned Highclere Castle, known to TV fans as Downton Abbey, and the property is still owned by his family. Lord Carnarvon was into horse racing and cars. Not racing cars per se, but more like just wanting to drive really, really fast. But when he was in a serious car crash in Germany in 1903, Carnarvon was grievously injured, and his health really never recovered. In order to minimize further discomfort, his doctors suggested a change of weather, since those legendary damp English winters were not helpful. So Carnarvon and his wife picked up and moved to Egypt to enjoy the dry heat. They would spend most winters there for the majority of the rest of Lord Carnarvon's life. And with so much time to spend in Egypt, it was probably inevitable that Lord Carnarvon would fall under the spell of Egyptology, which had veritably exploded during the 19th century after Napoleon's invasion of Egypt and the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, both of which kicked off the archaeological craze at the end of the 18th century. Lord Carnarvon really wanted to get in on all this action. And, having money, he was able to easily do so, throwing around some cash to hire a foreman and some workers to lead his own private excavations. And it went okay, as the team dug up a mummified cat and some other minor remains. But Lord Carnarvon wanted more. So he visited the director of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, the organization that tracked excavations and registered permits and licenses for those excavations. That man, a French Egyptologist called Gaston Maspero, suggested that Carnarvon needed some help. He needed Howard Carter. Chances are that if you know anything about the discovery of King Tut's tomb, then you know the name Howard Carter. Carter, the discoverer, the big man himself. 
Carter came to Egypt early, at about age 17, after his talents as a draftsman garnered him a position as an illustrator of tomb decorations on several excavations. With that experience came a growing knowledge of Egyptian culture, art, and history, and he worked his way up into being a sought-after and successful Egyptologist in his own right, one who could speak Arabic and could decipher hieroglyphics. Carter popped around, overseeing excavations under the purview of the Antiquity Service before a formal inquiry over a confrontation between Egyptian guards and French tourists led to his resignation. He then worked as an artist, selling tourist art in the Luxor area, and acted also as a freelance draftsman for various archaeological projects. But Lord Carnarvon came a-calling. And so did history. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter began working together on several smaller-scale projects for almost a decade when Carnarvon finally received permission to start digging in and around the Valley of the Kings, a place previously unavailable to them because the permits to do so had been given to other archaeological teams. So, with this permission, Carter moved in with hopes of finding tombs that may have been missed by previous work in the area. And he was right to want to do this because he was keenly aware that basically every pharaoh from the New Kingdom had been buried in the valley, and only one of them, Tutankhamun, had not yet been discovered. But then World War I hit, keeping Carter away from his efforts until 1917, and then he toiled with his team for nearly six years. And while the team uncovered a few minor tombs, nothing huge was panning out, and Lord Carnarvon was getting antsy. He wanted to just stop digging and threatened to stop funding Carter's excavations. But after cooling down and conversing with Carter, he decided to do it for one more dig. Just one more season. Carter felt that they had a good shot at uncovering something, because he knew there was a place that he specifically wanted to search. There was a pit near the tomb of the pharaoh Ramses VI, where some materials that had seemed to relate to Tutankhamun's rule had been found. And that appeared to be as good a place as any to begin digging. Carter and his team did just that, beginning on November 1st, 1922. All was a bit uneventful for three long, tiring days. But then something happened on the fourth day, November 4th. After a young assistant stumbled on a rock protruding from the ground, Carter's team took a closer look and realized it wasn't just a stone. It was a step, a step carved down into the bedrock. I can only imagine that little feeling in the stomach, that little butterfly of excitement that must have accompanied this discovery. And sure enough, the next day, their excavation revealed 12 more steps leading to the upper section of a mud-plastered doorway. And this part is crucial. The plaster was intact and marked with cartouches, these little oval or circular seals with hieroglyphics on them, with the symbol of the ancient guards of the valley. 
so whoever was buried there had mostly stayed buried, and probably for millennia. And in a time when not only rampant excavation and exploration had occurred, but also centuries of rampant grave robbing, this was huge. And here's where Howard Carter did a really smart thing. Instead of surging forward impatiently with his team, he ordered that the newly uncovered stairway be covered back up again, refilled with dirt and rock. Only then did he send a telegram to his sponsor and employer, Lord Carnarvon, writing, quote, At last have made wonderful discovery in Valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations, Carter, unquote. Carter, you see, was no dummy, and he knew that he needed his Egyptomaniac patron to be physically present for whatever was coming next, because whatever was coming next was surely going to be big. About three weeks later, he finally has his moment. On November 23rd, when in the presence of Carnarvon and his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, Carter's teams uncovered the stairs again. And it was at this point where they must have had two contradictory feelings, because now they could more fully see the door in front of them, and they saw that the door had been broken into. Though the signs of grave robbing were very old indeed, so potentially had not occurred long after the tomb was originally sealed. But that feeling was certainly displaced, at least a little bit, by a growing excitement, because the door did indeed bear the seal of the pharaoh Tutankhamun. This was the boy king's lost tomb. This was Howard Carter's white whale, and he had finally found it. Knowing that Tutankhamun's tomb had been robbed at some point probably meant that Carnivon, Carter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, and the rest of their gang kept their expectations low for the following three days as excavations continued. But they were about to be very happily surprised. That first door led to a rubble-filled tunnel, and after three more days of parsing through that rubble, they discovered a second doorway. Intrigued, Carter chipped a hole into the upper corner of the door, while Carnarvon, Evelyn, and Carter's assistant stood anxiously nearby. After first inserting a candle through the hole, as a test for the presence of any dangerous gases potentially trapped inside, Carter was able to peer inside for himself. And that's when one of the most famous exchanges in archaeology occurred. Impatiently, Lord Carnarvon whispered, Can you see anything? And Carter's reply, three little words, changed history. Yes, he said. Wonderful things. Those wonderful things, as they'd soon discover, included an amazing number of gold-covered items, from disassembled chariots to couches and beds to sculptures, games, and a whole lot of weapons. These items were scattered haphazardly, most likely due to those ancient tomb robbers. But they were still in amazing shape and showcased an incredible degree of craftsmanship, with over 5,000 objects eventually to be cataloged there. The best was yet to come. And came it did, in February 1923, when Carter's team finally opened another door located off of their original antechamber and uncovered Tutankhamun's burial chamber. Though it had been broken into, Tut's sarcophagus was intact, and his mummy was still in the same condition that it was thousands of years earlier. 
He was buried in a gigantic sarcophagus made out of quartzite and then nestled in three coffins of diminishing size, with the interior one, the one that housed the pharaoh's remains, made of solid gold and containing the incredibly intricate funerary mask, one of the most famous items ever uncovered from ancient Egypt. Coming up next, all the world goes Egypt mad for the discovery of King Tut's tomb. And some people, it is said, paid the ultimate price for their enthusiasm. Don't go away. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift should I give someone? What to give yourself when you're just sitting at home? What to give a friend or your parents? What to give your wife, your husband, your partner? Or to your children or a colleague at work? If there's anything that I've learned over the last year, it's that everyone loves puzzles, especially me. Wooden Puzzles from Unidragon solves this problem uniquely. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape, and it's very interesting and challenging for both children and adults. Each puzzle is packed in a beautiful premium wooden gift box, and their incredibly colorful designs are tantalizing. With new puzzles being released every month, you have so many options to surprise and delight someone special in your life. These gifts allow for novelty, and they certainly have that wow effect. I recently got a puzzle that shows this beautiful landscape of the Italian Riviera. It's just a wonderful escape while I am still working part-time at home. So you should check out Unidragon yourself. To do this, go to unidragon.com and use my promo code ART10 to get 10% off. So remember, it's Unidragon, U-N-I-Dragon, D-R-A-G-O-N.com and use the promo code ART10. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy, and I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
You can imagine that all the hubbub around these history-making discoveries meant that there was a lot of attention suddenly thrown upon everyone involved, Howard Carter, Lord Carnarvon, and so forth. And even more attention on the site itself as a wonderland full of ancient and mysterious treasures. Suddenly, the world's eyes were on Egypt, and soon the Valley of the Kings was practically overrun with both tourists and journalists, all jockeying for a good view. And that most likely made it difficult for the excavations to continue smoothly. It's at this point, some historians have argued, that the idea of the curse of King Tutankhamun's tomb first came to light. And it's entirely possible that it was brought up to the public by none other than Howard Carter himself as a way to potentially stave off looky-loos who might trample the delicate excavation. Whether or not this is true, the concept of the cursed Egyptian tomb wasn't a new one, and in some cases, it had been swirling around since ancient times. There have been a few examples of tombs from both the Old Kingdom and New Kingdom in Egypt where a few tombs or complexes bore inscriptions warning of curses. But in most of those cases, historians believed that it was a way to keep the tombs pure from a spiritual standpoint for the pharaoh's journey into the afterlife, and not necessarily meant to dissuade grave robbers. That being said, there is at least one Old Kingdom tomb that, according to modern-day Egyptologist Zahi Hawass, might raise some eyebrows, reading, quote, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose, unquote. There did seem to be at least one example, though, of a proposed mummy's curse in Europe a couple hundred years before the opening of Tut's tomb. In 1699, an author named Louis Penichet published a book on the embalming practices of societies throughout time in which he covered the ancient Egyptians, of course. But in the process, Penichet also shared a story of a curse that supposedly haunted a Polish traveler who sought to bring two mummies back to his home country after ferrying them from Alexandria. On the voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, not only was the traveler and his crew met with awful, dangerous weather, but the traveler himself was haunted by two specters, of mummified people, one assumes and continued to be plagued by these terrible visions until the mummies were thrown overboard, at which time the seas also miraculously calmed. And as the centuries progressed, so did the increase in the number of stories dedicated to cursed tombs and mummies rising from the dead. These works proliferated in the 19th century, with some of the earliest stories of the so-called curse of the pharaoh coming from women writers, interestingly and even include some big names, like Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Women. The timing of the rise of these stories about cursed tombs and mummies and all that jazz actually makes excellent sense, because, after all, this is the 19th century that we're talking about, with the rise of the Gothic and the theory of the sublime, all of which revolves around big emotions and big drama. And what is more dramatic than a really good ghost story? Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's no coincidence that the first so-called horror story was written only a few decades earlier. And one of the earliest mummy tales was published only a few years after Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley published Frankenstein. Creepy tales were all the rage, so the mummy's curse fits right in. And for the most part, it showcases what any so-called pharaoh's curse was. A story. Just a good old-fashioned ghost story. And yet, there are these events that occurred around the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb that can, to those with a suggestive mind, be considered the outcomes of a terrible curse. Little things, and then big things, that can be pulled together by threads that produce, at the end, a scary story or a warning, a new thing to be feared. And that's what may have happened here. On the day after Carter and his team discovered the doorway into what they'd come to realize was Tut's tomb, a member of Carter's team, an Egyptologist named James Henry Breasted, was sent on a quick errand back to Carter's house. While he was there, he was greeted with a terrible sight. Carter's pet canary had been snatched away by a cobra. Now, that wasn't great, of course, but it caused a panic in Carter's household, because cobras had long been considered symbols of the pharaohs. And you can even see the royal cobra, the so-called Uraeus, the symbol of an ancient Egyptian protector goddess, on Tut's golden funerary mask. The cobra broke into Carter's home, it was said, in response, or probably revenge, on the same day that Carter broke into Tut's eternal resting place. This story was then picked up by none other than the New York Times, who included this tidbit in an article from December 1922. One wonders if this inclusion greatly affected the story of the curse, that it was reported internationally and by what we know as a generally credible news outlet. So the death of a bird is, again, not ideal, but it's not anywhere close to the kind of curse that readers might have come to expect, given the penchant for spooky mummy revenge stories from the 19th century on. But of course, the curse was really just ramping up, and it was ready to take out one of the big guys next. In March of 1923, only a few months after the tomb's discovery, Lord Carnarvon was shaving and accidentally nicked a mosquito bite that had been languishing on his cheek. The cut quickly became infected and developed into blood poisoning, and Carnarvon spiked a fever. After rallying for a brief time, he died from pneumonia on April 5, 1923, at the age of 57. It was a tragedy, a loss of a father, a husband, a keen amateur Egyptologist, and a supportive patron. But it just so happened that two weeks before Carnarvon's untimely death, the English novelist Marie Corelli mailed a letter to the New York World magazine that claimed that she had warned Lord Carnarvon about the so-called dire punishment that would surely come to bite him, so to speak, when she had learned about reading some ancient text, she said. That alone got newshounds and news junkies alike all riled up. 
and soon this story was everywhere. The curse of Tutankhamun, with Carnarvon as its first true victim. With the cat out of the bag, lots of people took up the tale. Like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes himself, stepping in to declare that, quote, an evil elemental spirit, unquote, had been conjured by the ancient Egyptian priests to protect the tomb from invaders. And, alas, they had exacted revenge on Carnarvon himself. And then the tales just kept on coming. It was said that back in England, the Lord's favorite dog had howled and collapsed, dying on the same night as his beloved master did in Egypt. And when the first examination of Tutankhamun's mummy was conducted, approximately six months after Lord Carnarvon's death, there was a report of a lesion found on the pharaoh's cheek, just like <gasps> Lord Carnarvon's deadly mosquito bite on his cheek. So what are the chances? I'm being sarcastic, but for real, this story went crazy. Lord Carnarvon's untimely death would prove to be only the first in a round of deaths that were associated, some people believe, with the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. There was also Ali Kamalfami Bey, an Egyptian aristocrat who visited the tomb site in either 1922 or 23 and was shot dead by his wife not long after. Another early visitor, the American financier George J. Gould I, caught a terrible fever in Egypt before dying quickly after. Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, the man who supposedly first examined and x-rayed Tut's mummy, died mysteriously in 1924. Several of Carter's closest associates, Arthur Mace from his exhibition team and Richard Bethel, his personal secretary, died in 1928 and 1929 respectively, again from supposed unnatural causes. Mace succumbed to arsenic poisoning, and Bethel was smothered in his own bed. And these are just the big deaths. There are also a bunch of little occurrences that struck the superstitious as being a little too coincidental. After receiving a mummified hand as a paperweight, a friend of Carter's named Sir Bruce Ingram experienced a double whammy of real estate woes with his house burning down to the ground and then flooded after it had been painstakingly rebuilt. And, oh yeah, that mummified hand paperweight? Besides being a truly creepy present, it was said to have been adorned with a scarab bracelet that read, quote, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Unquote. It makes me understand this oft-repeated story about the fascist leader Benito Mussolini, who was once given a mummy as a diplomatic gift and subsequently freaked out about it, and ordered its immediate removal from his palazzo in Rome. All right, now let's get back to Howard Carter. Carter is the main guy of our story, the one most fully responsible for the excavation team who discovered and opened King Tutankhamun's tomb. If anyone was going to be cursed by the long-dead boy king, it would be him, right? And yet, Carter lived almost two more decades after his famed discovery, finally passing away in 1939 at 64 years of age from Hodgkin's lymphoma. All in all, kind of a normalish way to die, or at least not an unheard of cause of death. In total, it's said that out of the nearly 60 people who were present when either the tomb itself was opened or that incredible sarcophagus was first opened, 
only eight of them died over a span of the next 12 years. Given the odds of anyone dying at any time, really, and especially in an age before the discovery and or wide usage of penicillin and other luxuries of modern medicine, I think we can all chalk this up to not being a mummy's curse, but just life. All this season on Art Curious, we've talked about the ability of these stories. Stories of cursed paintings, cursed sculptures, cursed tombs, cursed buildings. To bring these objects and places to the forefront of our minds. To grow our interest in them long after their heydays. It's the reason I always look warily across the Grand Canal at Venice's Palazzo Dario. Why I sought out Black Aggie during the daytime, but probably wouldn't do so at night and why the name Tutankhamun alone is one of the most exciting, most mysterious, and most entertaining of the Egyptian pharaohs to us. The story of the pharaoh's curse, regardless of its accuracy, is just cool. And I can't help but wonder if that's one of the big reasons that Egyptomania swept around the world in the late 70s, and why ticket sales for the world's first-ever blockbuster exhibition changed museums as we know them. Was it just that everyone wanted to see all those glittering gold treasures from the past? Or was there also that little twinge of excitement, that hint of danger, when they considered this idea of the Tutankhamun curse? And really, if so, is that such a bad thing? Because as long as the curse lives in our memories, then excitement about Tut, his tomb, and all things Egyptology won't die either. We keep coming back hoping to see more, wanting to feel just a little bit spookier when we approach Tut's famed funerary mask, just like we want to gape a little bit longer at the cursed Hope Diamond. It's human nature. Those fanciful stories keep us just wanting a little bit more. But it's also fascinating to note that there might be a small element of truth to these stories of a so-called curse in this case. Though it's probably not the kind of curse that you're imagining, nor that it is necessarily specific to Tut's tomb. In the past few decades, scientists have posited that some mysterious deaths linked to archaeological discoveries like this one may actually be linked to mold, spores, bacteria, and other naturally occurring elements that proliferate there, to which our delicate systems may violently rebel. In the case of the curse of King Tut, this theory might not apply. And those deaths and occurrences, if anything, are just super coincidental and random in my own skeptical line of thinking. But all of this does go a long way to help us to understand why these stories keep popping up. It's not a curse of the Pharaoh so much as a curse of biology. Thank you for listening to Season 9 of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research by Jessica Walschlager. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, hosted by Josh Dassel, my husband, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. 
The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. To find the donation links and for more details on our show, please visit artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And remember, we have merch! Check out our link to our Tee Public store in the show notes or on our website. This is the last episode of this season, but you know we will be back for more super soon, and we also have all new bonus content coming your way later this summer, and then a fresh new season of Art Curious starting this fall. So stay subscribed, keep following, and check back with us soon as we explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.